0: Welcome to Vegan Business Talk with Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Hello and welcome to episode 56 of Vegan Business Talk. I'm Katrina Fox, journalist, author, media and PR coach, copywriter, editor and proofreader and founder of Vegan Business Media, a content, events and training platform providing success tips for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. In this episode, I interview food scientist Mary Mulry, Managing Director at product development consulting firm food One in Denver, Colorado. After gaining a PhD in food science and human nutrition, Mary's first jobs were with Kellogg's and Kraft in the early to mid-1980s, working in both analytical chemistry and product development. She entered the natural and organics industry when she took a position in product development at herbal tea company Celestial Seasonings in 1989 and has worked with many companies in this sector, both in the US and internationally since then. Along with an extensive array of industry partners and connections, Mary brings her wealth of expertise to a range of businesses, from startups to large consumer packaged goods firms. As well as consulting and guidance, she provides technical work, including help with food safety processes and documentation, sourcing ingredients, and project management. In this interview, Mary talks about The technical challenges and considerations involved in scaling up from a home-based kitchen to selling your products in retailers. Why it's important to be able to trace your ingredients through the supply chain back to their origin. The approximate investment a vegan business owner needs to make to get help with writing of procedures, making sure your documentation is in place and checking your supply chain. The types of food safety tests you may need to conduct, whether certifications such as vegan, gluten free and so on are important, and much more. Here's the interview with Mary Mulry of Foodwise One. Hello Mary, thank you very much for joining me today.
1: It's great to be with you, Katrina.
0: So you've been working in the food industry and the natural foods and and product space for quite some time now. Um, I think it's probably more than over 30 years, um, starting out with some big-name brands such as Kellogg's and Kraft. Um, One of the things I always ask people is why they do what they do. So can you tell us a bit about how you got into all this and why you do what you do?
1: Um, Yeah, I actually got into food science um, through – a recommendation in high school from my guidance counselor that it was a a really good field in uh, applied science because I wanted applied science. And there was a good program where I uh, resided, the University of Wisconsin, so that's where I did my undergrad. Um, And um, the more I got into it, the more interesting it was. And I actually started with... um, um, uh, doing an undergraduate at University of Wisconsin, and then I I, uh, did about a year or so Michigan State University in Michigan and then uh, transferred to University of Florida where I got a Ph.D. in food science and human nutrition. Wow. And um, Yeah, so um, my first job was with Kellogg Company in Battle Creek, Michigan, and I started in analytical chemistry because that was my minor. And uh, then I moved into product development and and found I liked product development much better. And so um, I worked in product development for a couple of years there and then moved to Kraft Foods in uh, Glenview, Illinois. And while I was at Kraft, I got a call from a recruiter about a job at Celestial Seasonings in Boulder, Colorado, which I had never been to, but had heard that, you know, both the company and the and the town were, um, you know, really progressive. And um, so I interviewed and they hired me um, as manager of product development. And that's kind of where I got into the natural and organics food industry. Organics was, was pretty new at the time, mostly um, related to uh, commodity products, um, you know, organic soybeans or corn or wasn't really all that um, involved with processed foods, but as time went on, there was much more interest in sort of mimicking conventional foods in the in the organic foods world, and and um, and also I, I became very interested in a number of trends that were happening um, sort of at the same time, so. The whole plant-based nutrition and um, supplements and, and gluten-free, um, those things came to the forefront um, as I was consulting and, and were quite interesting to me.
0: Fantastic, fantastic! See, I love that you've got that real kind of solid experience in both the food science and, and product development. That's fantastic. Thank you for for sharing that. So, on that topic, um, given that you've you've got all this experience in in helping um, businesses to launch products to market, and I think particularly with a focus on you know quality control, ingredients, and food science. Now, as I mentioned in my interview with Susan Cascaden, um, she briefly mentioned how scaling up a food business from a home kitchen to supplying retailers in large volume, it's not just a case of a straightforward scaling up of the ingredients proportionately, which I found really interesting because I, I don't know too much about the, the food industry. So I'd love it if you could expand on that in a bit more detail and, and tell us about some of the issues that um, small plant-based and vegan business owners need to know about if they're looking to do this.
1: Well, you know, I work with a lot of um, startup clients and, and uh, with, you know, brilliant ideas. Um, but they don't often know a lot about the food industry and the supply chain. So one of the things that I explained to them is that, you know, going from, you know, buying your ingredients at a retail store, or maybe even a food service distributor, like in the U.S. Cisco, um, you want to go to, you know, first of all, commercial ingredients, but then as you scale up, it's not a direct proportional um uh, scale up. So uh, there's always in, when I do product development with companies, I call, you know, it's sort of a three phase project. The first phase is, is the prototype. So you're, you've got a great idea, you've made it in your kitchen, or maybe you've worked with a commercial kitchen and you have a, you know, something you really, really like the way it tastes, the texture, everything about it. But now you've got to, Use commercial ingredients and, you know, check your costing and make sure that, you know, you can actually sell this for something that will give you a profit. But more importantly, there's a second step, which is scale up. And during the scale up process, you want to try to match as closely as possible your prototype. And sometimes that's easy and sometimes it's quite difficult because in with larger quantities and and uh, different commercial ingredients, um, there are sometimes changes, some of which can be adjusted and some that you have to make some compromises. And then the third stage is what I call manufacturing where you actually go to a full scale production um, at at a manufacturing plant. And there's another step of both proportionality and, you know, using uh, commercial ingredients in a higher volume.
0: Mm, cool. Can you explain, give us an example of how that might work with, say, a particular product? You don't have to name the product or a particular type of product.
1: Well, you know, a, a, a good example might be um, uh, a nutrition bar. So you make a nutrition bar in a little pan in, on your kitchen counter and you know, you've you've used certain ingredients that, you know, are whole food ingredients. You really like and The the bar comes out, you know, something that you hand out to your friends, and you know, it's it's perfect, okay? And they love it, and they they tell you how much you should really go into business, and so <laughs> you um, you know, and and you you know, you have all your 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 own you know kinds of. Um ideas about it. You know it might be you know that's got the best nutrition, it might have protein added, you know it might be gluten free, it might be vegan. you know whatever those requirements are, that's you know that's the product and the positioning that you want to have. Well, so then you go to buying commercial ingredients, and you know first of all, there's a cost issue because, you know, when you buy ingredients, there's not just the cost of the ingredients, but the cost of um, of um, uh, shipping those ingredients. And sometimes the shipping cost can actually be more expensive than the um, the ingredient itself. And wow. so, you know, you and you might have to go through a distributor. But um, but you look for ingredients that are high quality and and um, and you know, you ask the manufacturer for um, specifications for the things that you know you're interested in, and then you then you you know go out and try to find a a contract manufacturer, um, or you might make it yourself in a commercial kitchen. So you make the product in larger quantities, and um, and you know the product's still pretty good when you first make it, but then you find out that after two or three months, after it equilibrates, it starts to harden. It might, you know, the texture might change, the flavor might change. You might get oxidation of the nuts, or you know, some some changes that happen. So um, it's very different to you know give your friends a, a fresh product versus you know actually doing a shelf life test that says, okay, well. If I'm going to put this through a retail store, I might have to have a nine month to a year shelf life. And during that time, there might be changes in the product. Some of those changes could be positive, some might not be so positive. And so I have, you know, I've had clients with, uh, particularly with nutrition bars, where the bars will harden up or um, the ingredients, you know, that they get in, um, the, the, Contract manufacturer didn't check the quality. And so, you know, something went rancid. And, you know, now they have to trace back and go, you know, what do we have to change in order to get the product to be um, exactly what we want it to be?
0: Wow, that's fantastic! Thank you so much. You've explained that really accessibly, which I think is wonderful. Because I know with sometimes with people with like their PhDs in science, they get they talk in academies. I love that you explain that so accessibly and easily that even someone like me can understand. (laughs) So that's really great. This is so useful and really really important because I don't think it is something that a lot of small business owners think about. Like you say, they get that kind of thing from friends and family. Oh, this is amazing! You should make a business out of it, which is why I laughed when you said that. But don't really necessarily consider um, these things. So I think this is really, really important. So similar, to, I guess, related to that, and you've, you've touched on this a little bit, um, it's about, I guess, the importance of um, quality control or food safety, I guess, because I know you mentioned things like, well, something could go rancid in it. Now, obviously, that could be a major issue if someone eats that and they get sick or something. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of food safety and quality control and, and how that looks in reality for different types of food? products and business owners?
1: Sure. Um, The the issue of food safety, uh, and particularly in the last several years, because at least in the US, and I know globally, there's been um, a lot more um, regulation around food safety. Um, In the US, it's called the Food Safety Modernization Act, but there's global food safety standards. And um, in the past, I would say that companies they didn't really invest in food safety unless they had a problem, you know? So it was sort of like a, a retroactive look like, oh, I have a problem. I've had to fix it. Like I, you know, I had a client that had mold on their product and, you know, the retailer shipped it back and, you know, they were losing a lot of business. So they called me and they said, we, we got to fix it. Well, you know, they didn't have food safety built in. And what I, I try to tell uh, my clients, particularly startup clients, is you need to build food safety in from the beginning because, number one, liability uh, issues are, are much more, um, uh, are much larger issues now because there are consumers who will, you know, will sue a company, not just go, well, I got sick and, you know, please compensate me. But also the the the. Um, In the US, the Food and Drug Administration and in other countries, their equivalent regulatory bodies um, have more power now where they can actually shut you down if there's a perceived problem. So so really building in food safety from the beginning um, through either uh, what's called a HACCP program, hazard analysis, critical control points, or a, you know, a, a, a audited food safety program is is really critical um, for success. And it's not inexpensive, it, it's, it's both committing resources from a personnel standpoint, but it's also keeping a lot of records and documents. So what I was talking about in terms of food specifications is really critical, having Very tight specifications and testing of both the raw materials and the finished product and also understanding what changes uh, ingredients go through during the the process. So, for example, a cooked product goes through what they call a kill step. So um, your microbiology specifications can be more lenient if you have a cooking step, because that will kill microorganisms. But let's say you're making a bar, like I was talking about before, those products aren't typically cooked, there are baked bars, but for the most part, bars are not baked. And um, so you have a higher risk of uh, uh, causing sickness if something comes in with a raw material.
0: Mm. Ooh, I'm glad you've said that because I'm actually a really big, big fan of raw vegan bars. So I'm kinda <laughs> exactly. like oh,
1: okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, raw things have has that downside.
0: <laughs> yeah, they've got the plus side in that they're nutritionally right.
1: great. But yeah,
0: that there's that issue, especially because I often wonder that with them being raw, you know, and, and some of them do have quite a kind of a long shelf life. So I kind of I'm curious about how that that kind of works. Um, so no, that that's great that you've um, you've raised that. And I think as well, particularly like we're seeing a, such a popularity in in plant based alternatives, like plant based milks, for example. And I think we're already seeing in the US um, dairy industry trying to clamp down on not even allowing plant based milks to be called milk. So I'm guessing God, what I'm hearing is it's really important, um, you know, to to not give these businesses any kind of leeway to criticize your your products um, and it, it's great like as you mentioned to to get that food safety that food science element in from the beginning because that was going to be one of my questions is so how soon um, then should someone um, hire someone like yourself to to get all that in place and i think you've answered that by saying you know quite near the beginning um, can you talk about just a very very rough ballpark figure the kind of investment that a vegan food producer so could expect to pay if they wanted to get that all in place.
1: Well, I, you know, I would say you're probably talking about five to ten thousand dollars U.S. Um, for a consultant to uh, advise you and help you through all of the uh, writing of procedures and um, uh, making sure that your documentation is in place. And making sure that your supply chain is um, uh, traceable back to its origin. So, you know the good the good thing about organic, for as an example, is it's a it's a process based system. So it has to go back to the farm at some point. And that's ideally what you want to be able to do is be able to trace your ingredients back to um, ideally the farm, so that if there's a problem with any ingredient, you you would be able to identify what step in the supply chain there there might have been a problem. Um, And so for for a small business, that sounds like a lot of money. But if you look at it in terms of an insurance policy against either a lawsuit or a a regulatory agency seizing your product, it's actually a, a pretty reasonable amount of money.
0: For sure, for sure, and I can imagine retailers wouldn't be too happy either if they took on a product and then a customer said, "Oh, this has got mold on it, or this has gone rancid, and what have you," because then that could impact them uh, taking more of the product and impact the, the brand's reputation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, they most retailers will require, say, two million dollars worth of liability insurance, um, but um, you don't really want to have to. Um, call your insurance company and and make good on that policy. <laughs>
0: no definitely not now this is really really um really good information um mary really appreciate you sharing all this it's it's fabulous intel and like you said it does make sense to to get that all in place now when you quoted that and you said that's for like writing all the procedures what about the actual testing of the ingredients like is there something already in place like that you would know that say okay almond nuts are okay to be on the shelf for this amount of time if they're in a product um or is it literally a case of because every product is unique, it's got to go through all those tests individually.
1: Well, m- most food ingredients have um, what I would call pretty simple tests. You know, things like uh, moisture or water activity, which is a which is related to moisture. Um, sometimes you have um, indications of, of freshness and. And, and then microbiology, which is which is an indicator of food safety. Most of those tests actually run, oh, I would say at most a couple hundred dollars. Um, and what you really wanna do is push back to your supplier as much as possible. To do those tests, they should provide what's called a certificate of analysis. And they will actually do those tests on every lot of material and provide you with a report and what the FDA really likes is if you verify so it's kind of like you know the old the old term during the Reagan years here in the US where it was trust but verify so you want to have good quality suppliers but you want to be able to verify that the piece of paper that they're giving you is actually accurate and, um, and and those tests are really pretty reasonable. And depending on, um, you know, how many lots of product that you, you know, ingredients that you buy, you know, it may be worthwhile to have your own moisture test in-house or to do um, – they have these fast microbiology tests now that don't require extensive um, – you know, controlled rooms and things like that. So they're they're pretty much um, kind of turnkey. So um, there's a there's a point that you you kind of look at: Do I send this out to an analytical lab, or can I actually do it um, cost effectively myself? Um, usually, the testing part is not the expensive part. Usually, the part is actually writing the procedures, writing uh, developing the documentation and then recording during your processing everything you do. So, um, if you say it's supposed to be heated to 150 degrees for X amount of time, um, you either heat it to 150 degrees for the specified amount of time, or if there you know something happened where you had to adjust it, you make a note of that. And so it's it's really um, it's paying attention to detail um, more than anything else and, and understanding what are the critical control points um, in your process that you must pay attention to, whether that's temperature or time or, um, uh, you know, a, a, a particular heating step or whatever. Got it. So that sounds quite complicated for
0: somebody to do. So that's where someone like yourself would come in because you've got experience with all different types of products and that's how you can help people. And you could say to them, right, these are the tests that you need to do and help them to, uh, to do those. Is that right?
1: Yes. And, and also to help them write what I call their own internal specifications so that they are uh, purchasing ingredients against, you know, what they actually need. Um, and, and uh, so a lot of what a food scientist does is identify, you know, what's not so important from what is really important in terms of food safety and for, in terms of quality. If you want consistency, um, you know, you want the right texture, the right color, the right flavor. All those things have, um, have uh, impacts um, on, uh, on your product.
0: Fantastic. Now that makes a lot of sense. Um, I can see it's kind of a bit of a no-brainer in some ways. Then for for someone. Uh, not to hire a food scientist. Like it makes sense to obviously uh, get someone in to get all that in, um, yeah, from the beginning. So that's fantastic. So in terms of then, so say someone says, okay, right, I've got this product. Um, this is what I do. I've created it in my home kitchen. It's become really popular. I've done it at market stores or festivals. And now I'm really wanting to get it, you know, into distribution and retail. So take us through the process that if they come to you and say, right, I want to make sure all my I's and, uh, dotted and t, uh, you know, T's crossed, um, they come to you, what do you sort of take us through the procedure of what you would then do with that client?
1: Well, I, I would, um, you know, I would sit down with them and, 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 uh, go over what their I call it the scope of the project. What do you expect, you know, the, the food science scientists to provide to you? But then I would, you know, watch the product being made, um, and, and, you know, help them through every step of the of the process. I would ask them a lot of questions about, you know, how do they source ingredients? You know, where do you get, you know, say if it's a plant-based product, it's like, you know, where do you get your ingredients Are the, you know, what are the specifications? Um, and that includes things like all natural, non-GMO, kosher, uh, organic, if that applies, you know, how many companies have you like, you know, look to source material from um, and then you know going going over the the specifications with them as to what's important you know so so you you work back from the finished product so let's say it's a it's a veg vegetarian burger okay frozen vegetarian burger and as you know there's you know five or six different types of vegetarian burgers you know some, mimic hamburgers, some are very different and, you know, are are, uh, based on, you know, a conglomeration of of different types of plant-based products. Um, You know, some are cooked, some are not, some are, you know, have a, 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 you know, an actual grilled flavor, some, some don't. And so you start from the finished product and you say, okay, what, and this is where the entrepreneur or the the owner of the company is really critical. It's like, why is this product different? And what is absolutely critical that, that you have to control, um, to make sure this finished product is exactly what you want it to be. And, you know, so you go through the, all the sensory, uh, attributes, you know, color, flavor, texture, uh, uh, aroma, you know, uh, those are important things to define. And then you 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 kind of go back through the process and say, okay, what are the things from the raw materials through to the finished product that make sure that those things are consistent? And you know, as you sort of create this roadmap, to okay, you might have you know, five or six ingredients um, to get to this finished product, uh, you start to define what are the absolute critical parameters that you cannot um, overlook in order to get to this consistent finished product. And, um, And every product's different. Some products are really simple. Some products, you know, you're putting things together. You might be taking an ingredient and 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 cooking that ingredient before you add it because that's part of your um, proprietary, you know, process. All those things have to be defined, and then it's really a process of going back and defining, you know, what are the specifications of the, uh, the raw materials. What are the in-process, what I call in-process specifications that we can measure to make sure the product comes out consistently? And then before we ship the product, what are those finished product things that we need to test and or taste, you know, before we say, okay, we're now going to release this to shipment? Um, and it's it's actually fairly logical once you start going through it, but it is an incredible amount of what I call questions and you know just sort of um, asking somebody what is what is really critical about your product and and how do you expect it to be different from say your competition or another product that's in the, you know next to you on the retail shelf?
0: Got it. Can I hear a cat in the background? Oh,
1: yeah, actually, sorry. Oh, how fabulous! No, don't apologize.
0: I've had dogs occasionally come. And what's what's her his or her name? Um,
1: it's Ray R A E.
0: She's, Ray. She's... Hello, Ray. We'll give her a little call out. Oh, Hello, okay. Ray. yeah. yeah. If, I was like, if
1: I, if I shut her up, she would actually make more noise. No, she's oh. awesome. It's fine. I just wanted to acknowledge her. Yeah, she's, she's about nine, she's about nine months old, and so far she hasn't jumped on Oh, she's on a, a baby. Keyboard.
0: Oh, bless her. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) It's fabulous. (laughs) okay cool now this is great stuff so I just wanted to ask you about the shelf life thing which I think you've explained really well so in terms of the shelf life then are you saying so if someone's got say we'll use the example of the bar so if they've created their bar in their home kitchen are you saying and and say they've got all these ingredients are you able to come in and say okay I'm looking at your list of ingredients yes they'll be fine on the shelf for x amount of time or does uh, would that person have to literally test it and wait nine months and see what it's like after nine months
1: well I'm not Almost no one waits nine months. So there's a couple of things you can do. One is you wait two or three months, and that's when most of the change would happen in terms of texture. Um, the other is what what's called an accelerated test. so you can um, put the put the product in a chamber at a hundred degrees uh, Fahrenheit, which um, ex- uh, accelerates things like rancidity or flavor changes. Um, in, in the cereal industry, when I worked for Kellogg's, it was a rough equivalent of one week at a hundred degrees equal one month at room temperature or, or 70 degrees. And that's okay. what, um, so you, so you can do a couple of things to kind of, uh, lower your risk of a problem that take less time than the nine months. But honestly, I have seen clients that, um, I mean, you really do just have to um, put the product in a chamber, you know, or in a room at 70 degrees and see what happens at room temperature before you're entirely sure. Um, Like I said, almost no one waits the nine months. But again, a food scientist can tell you, what are your risks like, you know, Almonds might go rancid, oils might go rancid, certain things might change texture, you know, so, so, you know, we can look at similar products to determine if we think there's going to be a problem, but you're never sure until you actually, you know, wait the whole time.
0: Got it. Got it. Now that makes sense. Fantastic. What are your thoughts on certifications, Mary? So, you know, actually having those uh, like things like, you know, a a product certified to be gluten free or vegan or organic or kosher or or any of those. How important is it for a product to to go that route?
1: Well, I I think it's incredibly important. I think consumers have become much much more sophisticated in uh, their understanding of different products and also i believe that certifications kind of keep you on your toes so um you know for example um you know gluten-free there's a whole process by which you do testing um to verify that you're gluten-free and and that is sort of overseen by a certifier so just like with organic certification um gluten-free has certain requirements that you must meet um, kosher I think is always a good uh, certification mostly because um, you know you you have a certain number of people who look for that as a, as a quality kind of um, symbol um, and you know in the in the plant-based world there's vegan certifications um, and you uh, uh, and I think, you know, consumers are looking for those things as a, as another assurance that, you know, number one, the company is ethical and is really paying attention to detail. Um, but also because, you know, there's a lot of companies out there that, um, you know, they might say they're gluten-free, but you're not really sure. And, uh, and I, and I believe in transparency um, in the sense that, you uh, the more information you can give um, consumers, the more they appreciate, you know, that you're you're being transparent.
0: Absolutely I agree with it and from just from a consumer perspective well, I mentioned I enjoy raw bars um, and even if I check the ingredients and I say well it pretty much looks like it's vegan I like the fact that it says it's vegan on it and I'm like okay cool and I'll actually favor a company that has taken the time to you know say that it's vegan or has it certified vegan so uh, that's good that you've mentioned that so just final couple of questions I just want to talk to you a little bit about trends because obviously as I say you've been in the food industry the natural and the, the organic sector for quite some time now. Just in terms of the whole vegan plant-based um, trend, which is obviously ramped up hugely over the past couple of years or so, um, what are your thoughts then on um, w- whether a company should actually use the word vegan uh, in, as opposed to, say, plant-based in its marketing materials, or its branding or even its packaging?
1: Well, I, I do think that um, we're still in the, in the you know, kind of – a situation where a vegan can sometimes indicate, um, you know, maybe, maybe something that doesn't taste so good. So it's just like gluten free for a long time meant, well, it was gluten free, but it probably wasn't as good as, you know, if you had a gluten free chocolate chip cookie, it probably wasn't as good as a regular chocolate chip cookie. I think that has been dispelled by a number of good products that are out on the market. And I think vegan is going to go through that same cycle where, um, you know, consumers will, will start to realize that vegan doesn't mean it probably doesn't taste good. And, um, and so I usually recommend that clients use plant-based or some other descriptor. It's okay to put vegan and it's okay to certify to a vegan standard but rather than putting vegan in the name or you know some other uh, indication that you know it's it's for vegans only, because if you look at you know the the overall consumer population, you know the vegan consumers are a small part of the population, so vegetarians might be ten percent. And you know people who want to eat vegetarian, um, some of the time is a much larger percentage. So you really want to appeal to as broad of uh, a consumer group as possible, but you also want the vegans to understand that, you know, you're serious about, you know, their needs. Um, and so I see a lot of companies, for example, uh, plant-based companies who are, you know, vegan, gluten-free, dairy-free because they see that, you um, Consumers are really looking for um, the cleanest products and, and the most allergen-free, particularly for their children. So it's it's kind of on a case-by-case basis. But I would say that um, you know rather than saying you know a vegan burger, you know you you might talk about plant-based nutrition, but have a certification from a vegan uh, certifier that your product meets that requirement.
0: Perfect. Perfect. That makes absolutely perfect sense. Wonderful. So final question then, uh, Mary, what what have been the key lessons you've learned through running your consulting business? Um, so that could be, you know, things you've learned about yourself or others or professional or even just things you've learned about clients and, and businesses.
1: Well, um, I would say a couple of key things. I mean, one, you mentioned it. It was learning how to communicate to marketing people and to entrepreneurs, which is different than talking to another food scientist. So I've learned to translate the science and the food safety and things into something people can understand. And, and, you know, I I actually really like marketing people um, because I know that the best quality product won't sell without a good market and good name marketing program. So that's one thing. I think that the second thing is, Entrepreneurs are really, really interesting people, <laughs> and they have incredible skill sets, but they also have incredible weaknesses. And I think the the biggest thing to to be able to is try to communicate to them is is how they can um, uh, magnify their their strengths and compensate for their weaknesses because because all of us have our strengths and weaknesses, we can't really change our weaknesses to a significant extent. I mean, if we're not organized, we're not really going to be, you know, super organized, <laughs> because, it's you know, it's just not our thing. Okay. And so one of the things I've learned about both working for entrepreneurs and working with entrepreneurs is to help them try to understand where their strengths are and how they can compensate for the things that they don't do well, instead of thinking that they can do everything well.
0: Mm, that's a good point, point. and I just wanted to clarify with you, uh, Mary, as well. So I know you what you're based within the U.S. Do you work um, solely in the U.S. market, or like do you work internationally? Or if someone was from another country and they wanted to bring their product into America, I just, just want to clarify the market that you work with.
1: Oh, I definitely work internationally. I've done projects um, with companies in in all parts of the world. I've been to India and China and Europe and and all over. I um you know the 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 market for natural organic plant-based you know is is not just a US market and and so I'm I'm happy to work with companies from from other countries and I love to travel um as well I can help companies understand the US market I don't know other markets as well as the US market um so I'm very comfortable telling them, you know, here's the distributors, here's how you, you know, how you get into retailers and that sort of thing because I, I have that experience. I'm not as, um, I'm not as uh, experienced in uh, the supply chain in other countries, but I but I certainly understand, um, you know, sort of the basics, you know, how to manufacture a product, uh, you know the the uh, steps in product development and that sort of thing, which which you know there's no difference um, between the U.S. and other countries on those things.
0: For sure, and the food science I guess right. is pretty similar in that almonds and are kind of I don't know I think the same anywhere. But
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but no, yeah, it's that, that's, that's a global did. it's a global science for sure. Yeah. Cool. Fantastic.
0: So, um, Mary, you've shared so much wonderful information. I know I've learned heaps and you've definitely nailed it, as you say, in regards to translating. I was thinking before I interviewed, I'm like, oh, she's not going to use these really long words with all these <laughs> weird ingredients. And you haven't taught it's like, it's made absolutely perfect sense. I'm not even in the, you know, the food sector per se, and that, that's made a lot of sense. So I think this interview is going to be so valuable um, to our listeners. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to do it. Thank you so much sure. for being on the show.
1: Sure.
0: So that was Mary Mulry of FoodWise1. You can find out more about Mary on her LinkedIn profile or you can email her at foodwise1 at gmail.com and put in the subject header via Katrina Fox or you can contact her by phone on 303 641 3685. And all those details are on the show notes page at veganbusinessmedia.com forward slash podcasts and going to episode 56. Now for our vegan business news roundup. The most popular snacks favoured by Instagram users in the US during the Super Bowl game were vegan, reports Veg News. Television service provider DirecTV analysed 25,660 food-related posts from January to October 2015 with the hashtag GameDay. Analysis by individual states and which GameDay posts received the most likes found watermelon to be the most popular snack across the country, followed by vegan snacks. In terms of engagement, vegan snacks received the most likes across the board. DirecTV said in its report, We discovered a definite trend in favoured foods, suggesting that while classics like hashtag no filter chicken wings still hold a special place in the heart of the nation, vegan offerings have recently taken game day by storm. Well, that's marvellous and we need to continue this so that those no-filtered chicken wings are replaced with vegan chicken wings in the hearts of the nation. But more good news showing that plant-based foods are finally shedding their bland, boring image and people are waking up to the fact that vegan eating can be delicious. Vegan Butcher has been named a top new job trend for 2017 by Time Money. In a feature titled Seven New Jobs That Are So 2017, writer Kristin Barler lists Vegan Butcher Citing the success and high-profile media coverage of Beyond Meat's Beyond Burger, which debuted at Whole Foods in Boulder, Colorado last year, and Impossible Foods' Impossible Burger, which is now sold in several high-end restaurants in California, as well as Chef David Chang's Momofuku Nishi Eatery in New York. Vegan Butcher joined other interesting job titles, including YouTube Sex Educator, Simulated Astronaut, Professional activist, bug bounty hunter, and don't worry, they're not hurting insects. These are actually hackers paid by companies to find vulnerabilities in their software and websites, compost collector, and death doula. <laughs> Well, those are certainly some creative positions. (laughs) It's good to see Vegan Butcher in there. And of course, it's great PR for the companies mentioned. And as I say in my PR training for vegan business owners, it's great to be included in these kinds of listicle articles. Italian pizza chain Zizi in the UK plans to add more vegan options to its menu in March after its January 2017 sales increased by 150%, reports Vegan Food and Living. After launching its vegan menu last year with nine vegan toppings, including some with dairy-free cheese made from rice, ZZ has already sold 30,000 vegan dishes this year. Marketing director Joe Fawcett said, The dishes are so great that we're seeing people who aren't even committed vegans choose them. Well, this is good news, especially as I found out there's a branch of ZZ on Wigmore Street in central London. And as you may know, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, I'm very partial to pizza. So I'm going to be checking out ZZ when I'm back in my hometown in October this year, presenting at the UK's first vegan trade show, VegFest UK Trade. And of course, it's fantastic to see vegan options getting more and more popular and mainstream eateries recognising this and hopefully eventually will take animal products off their menus completely. Finally, a vegan beauty parlour and hair salon is due to open in Brooklyn, New York this week, reports DNA Info. Deborah Hair Bay will open her eponymous Deborah Hair Bay Private Parlour, an appointment-only salon, along with her OMHH, which stands for Oh My Heavenly Hair, beauty retail store in Bedford-Stuyvesant. Hair Bay started the natural vegan product line OMHH in 2000, years after launching her first salon in Prospect Heights. She describes it as a glamorously natural lifestyle brand that is concerned about whole body care and health. I love that and I really love the name as well. Oh, my heavenly hair. (laughs) It's a sort of brand name that you want to say with with a lot of gusto. So I'll just say it again. Oh, my heavenly hair. (laughs) And the store will also host community events, including a makeup tips workshop, along with Valentine's Day and Women's History Month celebrations. This sounds like a fabulous place to visit. Love the emphasis on natural and healthy beauty. Fantastic. So that's it for this episode of Vegan Business Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate it if you gave it a review and rating on iTunes or any other platform you're listening on. Finally, I encourage you to head over to veganbusinessmedia.com where you can find more resources, including details of my media and PR consultations, copywriting, editing and proofreading services to help you grow your vegan business. I'm Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. And I look forward to catching up with you in the next episode of Vegan Business Talk. Bye for now.